Good morning, College Park. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, church, it is really good for my wife and family to be back. Love you. It was a, uh, a real pleasure for us to be able to watch via uh, video and to be able to hear as I would run into people in the community about what God was doing here. Sundays were really hard to be gone. And I hear from my kids, you know, Dad, Pastor Nate just crushed it this week. Or, you know, and I was really excited and a little nervous or, you know, things like that. So it was really good. Sundays were hard to be gone. Uh, got to go to some great churches in the area and uh, just so grateful to the elders for the privilege of being able to do this. I just such a feel so blessed beyond measure and it is really, really good to be back. It really is. So many of you have asked, are you going to tell us anything about, um, you know, your experience? And yes, I have a report that I have to give to the elders um, this month in our elder meeting. But I thought what I'd do this morning is just give you a quick overview of uh, what we did over the last uh, three months. So um, here... <laughs> 
So where in the world was I? All right, so my wife and I started in Colorado with a week together just to talk, think, and pray about what God has done in our lives, where we're headed, the next five years of our life, and just able to spend some time together and uh, think and pray, able to uh, get out and uh, stretch our legs, do some runs, get sick in the altitude, you know, things like that. It was just just a fabulous time, just frankly to unwind after 20 plus years of just constant movement in ministry with some vacations in there. This was the beginning of a really wonderful journey. was able to go to a conference with uh, our chairman of elders in Washington, D.C. at Capitol Hill Baptist Church and able to have uh, three uh, meals, uh, two of them, um, or one of them, a private meal with Pastor Mark Dever that's actually in the living room of his home with about uh, 15 to 20 other pastors, just seeing how another church does church ministry and then also being able to pick his brain about what's happening in the uh, national uh, movement of uh, evangelical churches in our country. We then went to England. And um, this is probably my highlight. I'm standing in the spot of the pulpit of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is my hero in Westminster Chapel in London, England. And this is the view if you're sitting in the pew, and this is would be his view preaching. Just a fabulous um, facility. God really used his ministry um, in uh, my life. This is the front porch or the portico of uh, Spurgeon's church. It's the original uh, portico. Uh, the church is still thriving, very healthy. Uh, the rest of the church had burned years ago, but the front uh, portico was um, was preserved. This is the pulpit of uh, Charles Simeon, who is sort of the father of expositional preaching. Um, the, there's words etched in that wooden pulpit that says, He who hath my word, let him speak it faithfully. So able just to kind of walk around his church and um, serve there for 50 years. About half of them, his people didn't want him there. That's a whole other story, not only of God's faithfulness, but also preaching uh, uh, expositionally, line by line. Um, we um, happened on a church in Bedford, the home of John Bunyan. And in this congregational church, the pastor of the church, uh, happened to be in the gardens of the church, met us, gave us a tour of the church, a tour of the little museum that they have, uh, with John, all sorts of things from John Bunyan's life. He's the author of Pilgrim's Progress. And he's right here giving my family a short little lecture, 15 minutes on congregationalism and why that's the best way for a church to be governed. And it was just, it was a fabulous, uh, conversation. This is the tomb of John Bunyan, um, in London. And then, um, we were able to tour a number of places, including Hampton Court, where the King James authorized version, um, the idea for that translation came about actually in that uh, very facility. There are spots of martyrdom all around England, and most people don't even know that they're there. You have people having at a coffee shop, uh, just hanging out. Little do they know that 30 feet from where they're um, sitting is a spot where three men gave their lives for the cause of the gospel during the reign of Mary Tudor. That's why we know her as Bloody Mary. There's also um, other interesting grave spots. You don't look at the horse, look at Parking lot number, parking spot number 23, that's the burial site of John Knox. So one of the greatest reformers that our world has ever seen is buried in spot number 23. So, um, and then uh, this spot in uh, Aberdeen, um, or St. Andrews rather, excuse me, uh, little GW in the driveway or the, the road there is for George Wishart, who was martyred, very influential in uh, Scottish Presbyterianism, and um, a, uh, this, Right next to a parked car, very few people would have even known that it was there. At the end of uh, the sabbatical, I did a number of things throughout it. Um, 
including speaking at a, a family camp that's near to our hearts. Also did some renovation projects um, in our home, but was able to speak at a conference and got to spend time with Alistair Begg. And then Daniel Henderson, um, is the guy with less hair, uh, is uh, a guy who really taught me everything I know about corporate uh, prayer leading. Able to spend uh, two meals with Alistair and just to talk with him about ministry and life and how God has worked at his church at Parkside Bible. Family was pretty worn out. Uh, <laughs> By the time we were done, uh, took them to all kinds of sites and gave them instructions on English Reformation. I, I pretty well wore them out and uh, just want to, on behalf of them, communicate our gratitude to you. We just feel so loved to be a part of this body and God just used this season to really refresh our hearts and we're so, so grateful. Someone asked me, how many miles did you travel? And I did all the figuring, went to Denver twice, Atlanta once, D.C. once, London, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh, Inverness, Glasgow. So I totaled up 18,000 miles uh, over the last four months. So I was moving and uh, the Lord really used this season in our family and uh, in my life in a great way. So Thank you so much. It's really good to be back. So it's been, I think, what, 14 weeks since I've preached to you, so I have a lot to say. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's get to work here. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of the church. Thank you for the gift of this church. And we pray now that you would, by your word, help us to understand who we are, Root us and ground us in you today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On May 17th of this year, Admiral William McRaven, the commander of the U.S. Special Operations Command, gave a commencement address at the University of Texas. Uh, McRaven is a 38-year veteran of the Navy SEALs. And to address 8,000 students at the University of Texas, he drew upon his experience and his training as a Navy SEAL to speak to these graduates about some life lessons, how to change the world. He lists in his address 10 different lessons. I only want to share two of them with you. The first one was in regards to the fact that Navy SEALs require their recruits and their training to make their bed. He talks about the fact that the bed has to be All the corners have to be tight, the pillow has to be in a particular place, and the the blanket neatly folded up at the at the foot of the bed. And the fact of the matter is, it seems kind of odd, he said, that here you're training warriors, and yet you require them to make their bed. Here's what he said about that. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride. It will encourage you to do another task and another and another. By the end of that day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that little things matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never do the big things right. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. Right? And all the moms said, amen. That's right. So the next time you see a bed of me, hey, if the seals can do it, you can do it. Get in here. Lesson number four. He says that several times a week, the instructors would take the class and do an, a uniform inspection. The hat had to be perfectly starched. The uniform had to be immaculately pressed. The belt buckle had to be shiny. No smudges were allowed. And if anything was off, there would be consequences. And yet he says, no matter how hard you tried, 
the instructors could always find something wrong with someone. The effect of this for failing the inspection was that then the student who had been targeted would have to run fully clothed into the surf zone and get wet from head to toe, then roll on the beach until every part of his body was covered with sand. The effect of this was known as becoming a sugar cookie. In fact, you stayed in that uniform the rest of the day, cold, wet, and sandy. And then he says this, there were many students who just couldn't accept the fact that all of their effort was in vain, that no matter how hard they tried to get the uniform right, it was unappreciated. And these students didn't make it through training. Those students didn't understand the purpose of the drill. And it was this, you're never going to succeed you're never going to have a perfect uniform. Somehow, sometimes no matter how hard you try or how well you prepare or how you perform, you still end up as a sugar cookie. It's just the way it is sometimes. So if you want to change the world, get over being a sugar cookie and move forward. And you might wonder, what in the world does that have to do with identity? Here's what it has to do with identity. I would suggest to you that the Navy SEALs are very effective in their training, not just because of the skill sets that they inspire or build into their trainees, but there's something about identity that happens when you become a Navy SEAL. The old identity of who you what you are is eclipsed by this new identity. Don't believe me? Well, let me give you just an illustration. Imagine I'm walking down the street in kind of a sketchy neighborhood with a guy who's a Navy SEAL. It's a pastor and a Navy SEAL. Guy jumps out and he looks threatening. I would say, dude, this is a Navy SEAL, man. You. He would not say, dude, this is a pastor. <laughs> he's not going to say that. He's not. I'm going to say he's a SEAL. And the fact of the matter is that identity matters. That, that statement, it says something. And it says something significant. The SEALs do not just train soldiers. They give them a new identity. Now, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at this matter of identity, particularly at mistaken identities. We're going to look at four of them. These are identities that we embrace that this isn't who we are. Identity one is I am what I do. Today we're going to introduce this subject of identity, talk a little bit about this. Next week, I am what I, how I look. Third week, I am what I have. And fourth, I am what I have been through. And through it all, what my hope is, is to try and give you a biblical identity. To help you understand what the Bible says about who you really are. It's one of the reasons why we have the whole small group series. You're going to spend some time, if you're in one of those live groups, talking about this, dialing into it. It's one of the reasons why we have the the book by Jerry Bridges that you can read that and and gain some additional material. We also have a a scripture memory verse. We'll talk about this a little bit today, just the the, the need to get God's word inside of our minds and our hearts because all these things are part of what it means to build this biblical identity. So today what I want to do is introduce this subject, talk a little bit about the problem, why are we talking about identity, and then secondly, What is God's solution to our identity problems? And then third, I want to apply it briefly at the end in regards to the matter of our work. So the first thing is this matter of our identity problem. And I want to suggest to you, our problem is that we read from the wrong script. In other words, there is this constant narrative 
that's happening both around us in our culture and also happening inside of us because of our fallenness and our brokenness. A script about who we think we are. And we need to ground it in what God says about us. When I use the term identity, I mean this. I mean questions like, who am I? Where do I belong? What do I believe to be true about the world? Why am I here? These are, aren't these huge questions? Identity is the essence of who we are. That, that unshakable reality. That at the core of the core of the core of who and what you really are. Think of the times in your lifetime when you've asked yourself that question. Who in the world am I? I guess it was probably a traumatic moment. Maybe an unexpected illness or a death. Maybe a relationship conflict where you can't believe you acted a particular way or you can't believe that this person's broken up with you and how bad it hurts. Maybe it's because of some kind of failure in your own life. Maybe a failure in someone else's life, your kids, your parents, a friend. And you begin to ask yourself some really important questions. See, what happens is that these questions surface the nagging questions that are in there all the time anyways. Or it it could be something positive creates those kind of questions, like a new job, going off to college, a new relationship, and you begin to think about, who am I? Sometimes when you mention the term identity, people think of the teenage years, that those are the time of life when you really wrestle with your identity. And sure, that's part of teenage world and the experience of moving from teenagers to into becoming a teenager into adulthood. But you know what I think? I think that teenagers just don't know how to hide their identity issues. I think adults get pretty good at hiding and covering our identity issues. That underneath all of us, no matter what your age, is this fundamental question of who am I? I think identity is fundamental to who we are as human beings. <clears throat> the other problem is that we live in a world that is not identity safe. Our world is broken and there are many competing ways to think about who you are, what's truly valuable, and how you should live. Tim Keller uses the term narrative or world story. Questions like, what should human life look like? Or what's wrong with the world? Or what can be done to make it right? These are enormously important questions and they relate to your understanding of the world and also to yourself. And so I'd like you to think about this, these questions and what informs the answers to those questions as a script. Mark Yorhouse has written a great book trying to address the matter of scripts, particularly the script of homosexuality, by giving a more compelling gospel script. So we need to realize that there are these scripts, this language that's in the world like actors who read off of a script, so we read off of a script based upon our experiences or our background or our theology or how we have experienced life. And what you need to know as well that the enemy is really good at developing counter-narratives to God's narrative. For instance, think of the first temptation in the Garden of Eden 
The script from the serpent sounded like this in Genesis chapter 3. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Friends, that's a script. Or think of the Tower of Babel. Build a big tower. Genesis 11, here's the script. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, and with its top in the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's a script. Or think of Jesus being tempted by the devil. The devil offers him a script. The script sounds like this. He takes him to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and the devil says to Jesus, all of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. That's a script. So one of the things that I want to happen in the course of these four weeks is for you to be script aware that you realize there's a script going on inside of you, and there's a script that's happening outside of you, that there's brokenness inside and there's brokenness on the outside of the world. And no matter where you work or where you live or what you've done or where you've been, there are scripts all around you. And the thing that I want you thinking about is this. What is the narrative of this script? What is the story? And how does that fit with God's script for my life? Let me make this very practical. Teenagers. Some of you have already started school. Some of you will be starting school. What's the script in your school about cool? What's popular? What's important? Just walk down the hallway tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever you start, and just look at the scripts around you. Even the lockers, when you open them up, there's a script there, right? The bags you have, the technology you have. Adults, teenagers aren't the only one who have scripts. What's the script in your workplace regarding who is recognized and rewarded, who is successful? Parents, there's, there's lots of scripts that our, our children want us to believe. There's scripts that they give us regarding what they want us to buy and even what they want to wear. Anyone else heard the statement? But dad, all my friends have blank. I'm telling them now, look, that's a script, yo, right? That's a script. I know that. It's a script. Singles. What's the script of your conversations when you're hanging out with your friends regarding achievement and who's really successful and and maybe who's got the new relationship? Women. When you stand in front of your wardrobe, what's the script? Men, when you walk into the gym... You're going to hit it. What's the script? You may be here, and you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a Christian. And I'm so glad you're here. But you're not immune from the script thing either. In fact, you have all kinds of scripts that have informed what you think is valuable, important. And you may be here because you've run to the end of that script and realized, you know what? There's something missing. And if that's the case, you're right. And I'm so glad you're here. Because what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is help you to see the, the beauty of the gospel script, how God gets underneath all of our other scripts and gives us a more compelling, more satisfying, and more eternal narrative. The key, the key to becoming who you truly are, the key to finding yourself is not following your heart. It's following the right script, namely God's script. So I want you walking into your world this week just looking and listening for the identity scripts 
around you. Now, what is God's solution to all of this? What's God's solution to all of this? God's solution is to, before we talk about what we do or how we do it, is to ground us in who we are. The world attaches who you are to what you do. But the Bible attaches what you do to the reality of who you've been in Jesus. In other words, we are called to be who we really are. But the gospel grounds us in our identity so that we can then live and be free to follow hard after God. In the book of Colossians, we see this, and there's this pattern that emerges. It's a pattern of indicatives that precede imperatives. English teachers just went, amen. And the rest of us were like, what? Right? What's an indicative? An indicative is a statement of fact. It's a, it's a reality. An imperative is a command. And what that's saying is this. That indicatives in the Bible, who you are, precedes imperatives. Or say it another way, God commands us to do things because of who we are. He doesn't command us to do things so we can become who we are. No, no. He commands us to do things because of who we are. Let me show you this. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, there's an indicative right there. There's a positional reality. When you start looking at the Bible through this lens, you'll see it all over the place. Look for position that precedes practice. Look for indicatives that precede imperatives. Look for being statements that precede doing statements. You'll see it all over the place, and it's absolutely backwards as to how the world thinks. The world thinks doing equals being. That's one of the arguments for abortion and euthanasia. If you don't have functional value in the world, then you're really not valuable. No, the Bible says, no, no, you have ontological value. Because of who you are, you're valuable. Your value doesn't come from what you do. Your value comes from who you are and better from whose you are. See? Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, that's a spiritual reality connected to the resurrection of Christ, Seek the things that are above. So you're to seek the things that are above because you have been raised with Christ. That's the first one. Here's another one. Look at verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's an indicative statement. And because of the word for, we know that verse 2, although it's, it precedes it in the text, it doesn't precede it in terms of how you do it. Verse 2, he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So that's what they're commanded to do. But then he gives them the reason. So indicative, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's all over the Bible. Who precedes how? Who before how? This is really important because when the bottom drops out in your life in some area and you feel like, man, this... The how of my life got really tough. You need to be anchored in the who. This is not just in Colossians. Three other places. Romans chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. That's the indicative. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. There's the imperative. Galatians 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. There's the position. Walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's the practice. 
Romans 6 again, verse 18. Having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness, there's the indicative, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, there's the imperative. The point of all of this is simply that being comes before doing. And this is the essence of the paradigm of the good news. How so? It means this, that the problem in my life as a human being is not just the things that I do. Oh, they're a problem. The problem in your life are the things that you've done. You've done a lot of bad things. I've done a lot of bad things. But the problem is not just the things that I've done. The Bible says, no, it's even deeper than that. The problem is not just what I've done has offended God. It's who I am is actually in rebellion against God. That the essence of my being is broken. So it's not just the things that I've done. It means that I am so deeply broken inside of me that what I need is something that I can't fix, I can't do. And the Bible says that God, through Jesus, makes it possible for people to be redeemed, to be repaired at the very core of who and what they are. Which is why Jesus, when describing this thing called regeneration to a really smart scholar named Nicodemus, he said to him, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. To me, to be born anew from the inside out, it means that when you receive Christ as your Savior, you're not only turning away from all the wrong things that you've done, you're actually turning away from the identity of who you were before Jesus. It means that you're saying, Jesus, I've sinned and I need you to come and to take over my life because my identity separate from you is not an identity at all. It eats me out from the inside out. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a character in that book or movie, depending on which one you either read or saw, named Eustace. He is annoying beyond measure. You love to hate him. He, in the movie, he's whiny. He complains about everything. You just want him to get thrown overboard. One day he wanders off, and um, because of a greedy heart, he gets turned into a, a fire-breathing dragon. When his friends finally figure out that he's a fire-breathing dragon, Eustace then tries to sort of redeem his dragonness by becoming helpful to them in, in any number of ways. And at the end of the movie, or at the end of the book, after they've vanquished all of their foes and everything else, Eustace is trying to get free of his dragon scales. He wants to be undragoned. And so he begins to try and peel off the layers of his scales. But as Lewis says, the further he peels away at his flesh the more scales that there are and he realizes as he peels more and more layers that he can never get deep enough to get all of the layers of the scales off until Aslan who is the messiah like figure who is watching takes his claws and in the movie he scratches in the dirt I believe in the book he actually puts it on his chest and he cuts him so deep here's what Eustace says the first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart and the only thing that made me bear it was the pleasure of seeing that that stuff peeled off. And when Aslan is done, Eustace is restored back to his status as a human boy. And this new Eustace is never the same again. But he couldn't peel the scales off of himself. And that's the problem with some of you in this room today. You've tried changing your appearance, your jobs, you floated from relationship to relationship, you moved. To the other side of the country or the other side of the world. Or you, you climb the top of the corporate ladder. You thought, finally, finally, finally. And you keep repeating the same mistake over and over and over and over and over. And you found yourself asking yourself, who in the world am I? And the problem is you're Eustace. 
trying to peel the scales off, and the reality is you need surgery from somebody else. And that person, the Bible tells us, is Christ, who can change you from the inside out. Some of you are wearing these wristbands around. There's this verse on here, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That, that verse says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It's good to be reminded of that. I've got a new identity. It's all, you know, I also, it's good to wear this because you find out who really goes to this church in the community, right? I heard about a guy this week who walked into an interview and he saw the interviewer had one of these things on. He was like, yeah, you know. <laughs> I don't know if he got the job or not, but at least he knew they went to church together, so. There's a new power. There's a new identity. There's a new you. In fact, look at verse 9. Paul says this. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. So he even uses the term self. Verse 10, and have put on the new self, with, which is being renewed in the knowledge. Now notice this, after the image of its creator. We're going to look at this next week. What does it mean to be an image bearer? But the idea is this, is that you're being transformed inside into something that's not you. The image isn't of yourself, it's of your creator. The key then is to live in and through this identity, which is why Paul says things like this in verse 1, seek the things that are above, set your minds on things that are above in verse 2. Why Paul in other passages like Romans 8 says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What we need to do is to set our minds on what does the Bible say about me? What does Christ say about me? Because if you live by your narrative or the narrative of people around you, you will be living by the wrong script. Skip down to verse 11. Let me just show you the implication of this. When I talk about God's script, Paul just nails it in verse 11. He says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. That little phrase has got to be underlined in your Bible. That is the essence of what we're talking about when it comes to identity. And you see what Paul did in verse 11? He just dismantled the standard identity categories in the culture. I mean, look at, look at it again. There is not Greek or Jew. What is that? That's a racial category. There is not circumcised or uncircumcised. What is that? That's a religious category. Religious heritage category. Barbarian, Scythian. What's that? That's a cultural category. You got people who are high culture, people who are barbarian culture. People who are slave or free. He's not using that in how we might hear it. He's using it in an economic sort of category. So what he's saying is this is that we have these little categories of our identity, whether it's racial, or whether it's religious heritage, or whether it's cultural, or whether it's economic. And what he's saying is, is that there is an identity that's underneath all the other identities in the world. That while we may be black, or white, or Latino, we may be rich, or middle class, we, we, or, or, or lower class, we, we, we may be employed, or underemployed, or unemployed, we may be male or female, young or old, but the fact of the matter is there is an identity that is underneath all of our, all, all of our identities, and it is Christ. In all, is all, and through all. That's the identity. So that when Paul says this, Christ is your life, that's what he means. Listen, friends, this is so huge. 
teenagers, you walk into school, you walk down the hallway, see all this sort of peer pressure, you need to be reminded, Christ is my life. You get a breakup email from somebody or a phone call or worse, don't ever do this, a text. <laughs> oh man, come see me if that happened. I'll go talk to him. So, me and my SEAL friend, right? So, uh, <laughs> what do you need when you see that? You're like, what? What do you mean it's you? It's me, not you. Whatever, right? What do you, well, you see? It, you know, you, Christ is my life. Boss comes in and says, hey, I got bad news. You know, we talked about this 10% headcount cut thing, and I thought I could hold it out so you could keep your job, but Simon, there's no way. So like next Thursday, and when that security team's walking you out with your little box, Christ is my life. Or your kids who you thought were just going to nail it in life ended up making a huge mistake that you're embarrassed about, you don't want anybody to know, and you lay in bed at night and just like, we have failed. You remind yourself, Christ is my life. Put your identity in any of these other things, they will fail you. Because they're not meant to hold the weight of Christ is in, is all and in all. How do you get God's script for your life? Oh, man. That's why you read the scriptures. That's why you pray. That's why you feed your mind with a scripture verse like this for this week. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You anchor your soul in that sort of truth. You worship together. You sing together. And over time you begin to build an understanding of who and what you are in Christ that you can rest knowing that Christ is your life. Just think of this. You'll never hear the following from Jesus. You'll never hear, go play somewhere, I'm busy. You'll never hear, it's just not going to work out between us. You'll never hear Jesus say, it's not you, it's me. You never hear Jesus say, hey, good job on this, but you never hear Jesus say, who are you again? You never hear Jesus say, beat it. And the beauty of this gospel is that it changes who we are before it changes how we live. God's script for us is who you are before how you live. How does that relate to work? Let me just try and apply this in three ways. When we think about the gospel and how it grounds us in our work, the first thing we need to realize is this. That church, work is good. It's a good thing, but it's a bad God. Like everything in life that God has given us, there are great and good and wonderful gifts that were meant to be celebrated as things that he has provided to us and, as we'll see in a moment, conduits to make much of him. So work is a good thing. But it can become too important. The creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1 was to fill the earth and to subdue it, to have dominion over every living thing. So work 
even after the fall, is still a good thing. But the problem is, when work begins to shape our identity, when it defines who we are, it has become an idol. So for some of you, you're working way too many hours, and it's not because the job demands it. It's because your identity requires it. There's some of you who aren't working hard at all. And the reason you're working hard at all, you're not working hard, is because you want to have the identity of, I could do that, but I choose not to. And your boss is going to say, I could choose a lot of people and I don't choose you. <laughs> Work is a good thing, but it's a bad God. Here's the second thing. Glorifying God transforms work that feels undervalued or that feels ultimate. Look at Colossians 3.17. Go all the way down. This is the conclusion of this text. Paul says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what Paul does, after working through this identity thing, he comes all the way down talking about how they're to act and how they're to be kind to one another and forgiving and to be thankful, letting the word of Christ dwell in them richly. Then he says, and everything that you do, all of the things that you do, everything, the menial, the mundane, to the significant and meaningful, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3, 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It means that Everything that I do could be a conduit to glorifying God. Some of you may wrestle with the fact that you're not in the kind of work that you thought you'd be in. Talk to many moms who come home, they stay with their kids. I mean, got extensive education and they're picking up Cheerios and they're just like, what? And there's an identity thing. I, I understand it. Or as a man or as a woman, you had this high profile job and now, it's not like it was before. So how do you, how do you work in, when you're underemployed? Or how do you work when you're just nailing it from a worldly perspective without it going to your head? You know what you do? You have to see that work as something that is part of the means by which you glorify God. You have to realize that work is not ultimate, and what you do isn't ultimate. That God and His glory is. Here's the final one. We could spend a lot more time on this. We're just going to conclude it this way. Gospel identity grounds us in our failures or successes. Sometimes in life, things go really, really well. And sometimes they really don't. And there's highs and there's lows of life. But knowing who you are... Knowing your biblical identity and how it is connected to the gospel anchors you in the midst of every season of your life. When you're successful, it anchors you. It anchors you from thinking, look what I've done. Look at my kingdom. Look at all these things. Look at these hundred people who are like my minions and they do exactly what I say and they say, yes, sir. And then you go home and you're like, I can command a hundred minions and I can't get four of them in the car, right? How, how is that? Right? It, it takes the luster off of your success to realize that brain that you have wouldn't work without God's providential care. The little firings in the 
synapses or whatever they're called in your brain. If you figure this out, you're gifted and wonderful. Appreciate the guys who understand and women who understand neuroscience, the things that fire in your brain. It happens because of God's providential care. The giftings that you have, the family that you were born into, did you choose any of that? Did that happen because of you? Paul, Paul says, what do you have that you haven't received? The answer, nothing. So the gospel grounds us when... God in his favor gives us great blessing. It also grounds us when we failed. When we've performed badly. When we have not done our best. When we've made a mistake. Not lived up to other people's expectations or maybe even our own. What happens is that the gospel frees us from allowing our failures to overly define who we are. And so this is what we need to do. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves when you're at the top, realizing I'd have nothing without Christ, he's my life. Or at the bottom, realizing even if I have nothing, I still have Christ and I have life. And at the end of those two perspectives is the core of Christ who is your life. Christ is all and in all. The key is to be sure that you're reading and listening to the right script. I found a blog post a couple weeks ago by Tillian, I think his last name is pronounced Shavikin. Talks about driving home after a basketball game when one of his sons had a less than stellar game. His son was in the back seat, very upset. He had underperformed as a basketball player. When his dad asked him, what's wrong? He said, Dad, I played terrible. Fathers, you probably had this conversation with your sons or daughters. And you try and encourage him. No, you didn't play that bad. Dad, I played terrible. And then he asked him, he said, why, why is this so hard or hurtful for you? He said this, because I'm a basketball player. That's who I am. So then what he did wisely is he began rooting his son back into his true identity. He said this, I reminded him of the gospel. I showed him how the gospel frees us from this obsessive pressure to perform, this slavage demand to become. I showed him how the gospel liberatingly declares that in Christ we are already are who we need to be. While the world, the flesh, and the devil constantly tempt us to locate our identity in something or someone other than Jesus, the gospel liberates us by revealing that our true identity is locked in Christ. I told him that since he was a Christian, who he was had nothing to do with him, how much he can accomplish or what he can become, his strengths, his weaknesses, his athletic ability, what people thought of him, and so on. I reminded him that his identity is firmly anchored in Christ's accomplishment, not his. Christ's performance, not his. Christ's victory, not his. After listening to this, he writes, he stopped crying and from the back of the seat said, Dad, why can't you preach this way all the time? This makes sense. One identity crisis to another identity crisis. (laughs) And he said, feeling like a failure as a preacher in that moment, I realized that none of us can ever outgrow our need for robust reminders of the gospel. Amen? Amen. You need to know who you are before you can ask yourself, how do I work? 
Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can look at your word and we need help because there are many conflicting scripts in our world and even in our own soul right now. So would you minister grace to us by your word and by your spirit? Would you speak even now to the very depths of who and what we are about what script we're following and whether or not it fits with your word. And church, just for a few moments before you're dismissed, there'll be, there'll be prayer people up here afterwards if you need to pray with someone or speak with someone, they'd love to pray with you. I'm just going to give you a few moments of silent prayer just to think and ask yourself, so what is God saying today? You know, you're here for a reason. So why is it? And how does it relate to your identity? When the music begins to play, you're free to be dismissed. Or you can just sit and linger and think, pray, no rush. But just for a few moments, let's just ask ourselves, what did God just say to me?